You're now listening to the first of what we hope to be many bonus episodes. And this came from an idea by one of our supporters and patrons, Justin Jackson. He was recently listening to our episode on President Richard Nixon, part one. And during one of the clips we played uh, of one of President Nixon's speeches, he came up with the idea that it would be quite helpful and informative if we could actually post the entire speech onto our podcast so that our listeners could have them for their reference. And so that's what we've decided to do. One of the clips that we played during the episode was of President Richard Nixon's first inaugural address, and we have uploaded it here as a bonus episode for everyone to listen. Now, Richard Nixon's first inaugural address isn't particularly famous. There are many speeches, many inaugural addresses that are much more famous, like Lincoln's second inaugural address, Franklin Roosevelt in 1933, John F. Kennedy in 1961. But this speech is an interesting one because it represents the culmination of one of the greatest comebacks in American political history. As you'll recall, Richard Nixon lost to President Kennedy in 1960, and he ran for governor two years after that in 1962 and lost again. And it was at that point where people were basically writing Nixon's political obituary. They were saying that his career was over. And yet, six years later, he somehow masterminded uh, a return to national prominence, won the 1968 Republican nomination, and that fall won the presidency of the United States, considered today still one of the greatest comebacks in American political history. And it's interesting because you have a person like Richard Nixon, who at one point was considered very controversial figure, somebody who was not unifying at all, but taking office during an era that was very divided. Uh, The war in Vietnam was very unpopular. There were riots in the streets of the United States. And ironically, America was turning to somebody that had been considered controversial, Richard Nixon, in order to unify the country. And so it's one of these great ironies. And in this speech, you can listen to Nixon, not particularly eloquent, um, not known for his eloquence, but basically trying to speak in terms of uh, a statesman, trying to sound like a statesman who was above the fray, calling for these lofty ideals of peace. And I think that speaks a lot to Nixon's political skill. And it was that skill that allowed him to engineer that incredible political comeback. Also in the episode, I talk a lot about Richard Nixon's philosophy of realism. And in this uh, speech, you don't hear that explicitly stated, but you also get the sense that Nixon seemed to be educating the American people about the limitations of their country's abilities and basically to expect kind of a new era in American foreign policy, one that uh, he might not say the word coexistence, but one that envisioned a coexistence with America's adversaries, uh, the communists. And so I think these are interesting themes to, to look into as we listen to this speech. And we hope you enjoy it. Uh, and again, this was all because of a suggestion from one of our fans. 
uh, one of our listeners who's actually a supporter of us on Patreon. And if you join to support us on Patreon as well, uh, you can make suggestions that we will uh, take into consideration and possibly uh, do on the, the show itself. So we wanted to thank Justin Jackson for this great suggestion and we want to encourage everybody to take a look and perhaps sign up on patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash this American president. And feel free to give us suggestions on ways that we can offer you more resources and improve the show in any way possible. Enjoy the show. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. January 20th, 1969, Washington, D.C. President Richard M. Nixon's first inaugural address. You, Richard Milhouse Nixon, do solemnly swear. I, Richard Milhouse Nixon, do solemnly swear. That you will faithfully execute the office that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States of President of the United States and will to the best of your ability and will to the best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States the Constitution of the United States so help you God so help me God Senator Dirksen, Mr. Chief Justice, Mr. Vice President, President Johnson, Vice President Humphrey, my fellow Americans, and my fellow citizens of the world community, I ask you to share with me today the majesty of this moment. In the orderly transfer of power, we celebrate the unity that keeps us free. Each moment in history is a fleeting time, precious and unique. But some stand out as moments of beginning, in which courses are set that shape decades or centuries. This can be such a moment. Forces now are converging that make possible for the first time the hope that many of man's deepest aspirations can at last be realized. The spiraling pace of change allows us to contemplate within our own lifetime advances that once would have taken centuries. 
and throwing wide the horizons of space, we have discovered new horizons on Earth. For the first time, because the people of the world want peace and the leaders of the world are afraid of war, the times are on the side of peace. Eight years from now, America will celebrate its 200th anniversary as a nation. And within the lifetime of most people now living, mankind will celebrate that great new year which comes only once in a thousand years, the beginning of the third millennium. What kind of a nation we will be, what kind of a world we will live in, whether we shape the future in the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. The greatest honor history can bestow is the title of peacemaker. This honor now beckons America, the chance to help lead the world at last out of the valley of turmoil and onto that high ground of peace that man has dreamed of since the dawn of civilization. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment, that we helped make the world safe for mankind. This is our summons to greatness. And I believe the American people are ready to answer this call. The second third of this century has been a time of proud achievement. We have made enormous strides in science and industry and agriculture. We have shared our wealth more broadly than ever. We've learned at last to manage a modern economy to assure its continued growth. We have given freedom new reach. We have begun to make its promise real for black as well as for white. We see the hope of tomorrow in the youth of today. I know America's youth. I believe in them. We can be proud that they are better educated, more committed, more passionately driven by conscience than any generation in our history. No people has ever been so close to the achievement of a just and abundant society or so possessed of the will to achieve it. And because our strengths are so great, we can afford to appraise our weaknesses with candor and to approach them with hope. Standing in this same place a third of a century ago, Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation ravaged by depression, gripped in fear. He could say, in surveying the nation's troubles, they concern, thank God, only material things. Our crisis today is in reverse. We find ourselves rich in goods but ragged in spirit, reaching with magnificent precision for the moon but falling into raucous discord on earth. We are caught in war wanting peace. We're torn by division wanting unity. We see around us empty lives wanting fulfillment. We see tasks that need doing, waiting for hands to do them. To a crisis of the spirit, we need an answer of the spirit. And to find that answer, 
We need only look within ourselves. When we listen to the better angels of our nature, we find that they celebrate the simple things, the basic things such as goodness, decency, love, kindness. Greatness comes in simple trappings. The simple things are the ones most needed today if we are to surmount what divides us and cement what unites us. To lower our voices would be a simple thing. In these difficult years, America has suffered from a fever of words, from inflated rhetoric that promises more than it can deliver, from angry rhetoric that fans discontents into hatreds, from bombastic rhetoric to postures instead of persuading. We cannot learn from one another until we stop shouting at one another, until we speak quietly enough so that our words can be heard as well as our voices. For its part, government will listen. We will strive to listen in new ways to the voices of quiet anguish, the voices that speak without words, the voices of the heart, to the injured voices, the anxious voices, the voices that have despaired of being heard. Those who have been left out, we will try to bring in. Those left behind, we will help to catch up. For all of our people, we will set as our goal the decent order that makes progress possible and our lives secure. As we reach toward our hopes, our task is to build on what has gone before, not turning away from the old, but turning toward the new. In this past third of a century, government has passed more laws, spent more money, initiated more programs than in all our previous history. In pursuing our goals of full employment, better housing, excellence in education, in rebuilding our cities and improving our rural areas, in protecting our environment, enhancing the quality of life, and all these and more, we will and must press urgently forward. We shall plan now for the day when our wealth can be transferred from the destruction of war abroad to the urgent needs of our people at home. The American dream does not come to those who fall asleep. But we are approaching the limits of what government alone can do. Our greatest need now is to reach beyond government, to enlist the legions of the concerned and the committed. What has to be done has to be done by government and people together or it will not be done at all. The lesson of past agony is that without the people we can do nothing. With the people we can do everything. To match the magnitude of our tasks, we need the energies of our people enlisted not only in grand enterprises, but more importantly, in those small, splendid efforts that make headlines in the neighborhood newspaper instead of the National Journal. With these, we can build a great cathedral of the Spirit, each of us raising it one stone at a time, 
as he reaches out to his neighbor, helping, caring, doing. I do not offer a life of uninspiring ease. I do not call for a life of grim sacrifice. I ask you to join in a high adventure, one as rich as humanity itself and exciting as the times we live in. The essence of freedom is that each of us shares in the shaping of his own destiny. Until he has been part of a cause larger than himself, no man is truly whole. The way to fulfillment is in the use of our talents. We achieve nobility in the spirit that inspires that use. As we measure what can be done, we shall promise only what we know we can produce. But as we chart our goals, we shall be lifted by our dreams. No man can be fully free while his neighbor is not. To go forward at all is to go forward together. This means black and white together as one nation, not two. The laws have caught up with our conscience. What remains is to give life to what is in the law, to ensure at last that as all are born equal in dignity for before God, all are born equal in dignity before man. As we learn to go forward together at home, let us also seek to go forward together with all mankind. Let us take as our goal, where peace is unknown, make it welcome. Where peace is fragile, make it strong. Where peace is temporary, make it permanent. After a period of confrontation, we are entering an era of negotiation. Let all nations know that during this administration, our lines of communication will be open. We seek an open world open to ideas, open to the exchange of goods and people, a world in which no people, great or small, will live in angry isolation. We cannot expect to make everyone our friend, but we can try to make no one our enemy. Those who would be our adversaries we invite to a peaceful competition, not in conquering territory or extending dominion, but in enriching the life of man. As we explore the reaches of space, let us go to the new worlds together, not as new worlds to be conquered, but as a new adventure to be shared. And with those who are willing to join, let us cooperate to reduce the burden of arms to strengthen the structure of peace, to lift up the poor and the hungry. But to all those who would be tempted by weakness, let us leave no doubt that we will be as strong as we need to be for as long as we need to be. Over the past 20 years, since I first came to this capital as a freshman congressman, I have visited most of the nations of the world. I have come to know the leaders of the world, the great forces, the hatreds, the fears that divide the world. 
I know that peace does not come through wishing for it, that there is no substitute for days and even years of patient and prolonged diplomacy. I also know the people of the world. I have seen the hunger of a homeless child, the pain of a man wounded in battle, the grief of a mother who has lost her son. I know these have no ideology, no race. I know America. I know the heart of America is good. I speak from my own heart and the heart of my country, the deep concern we have for those who suffer and those who suffer. I have taken an oath today in the presence of God and my countrymen to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. And to that oath, I now add this sacred commitment. I shall consecrate my office, my energies, and all the wisdom I can summon to the cause of peace among nations. Let this message be heard by strong and weak alike. The peace we seek, the peace we seek to win, is not victory over any other people, but the peace that comes with healing in its wings, with compassion for those who have suffered, with understanding for those who have opposed us, with the opportunity for all the peoples of this earth to choose their own destiny. Only a few short weeks ago, we shared the glory of man's first sight of the world as God sees it, as a single sphere reflecting light in the darkness. As the Apollo astronauts flew over the moon's gray surface on Christmas Eve, they spoke to us of the beauty of Earth, and in that voice so clear across the lunar distance, we heard them invoke God's blessing on its goodness. In that moment, their view from the moon moved poet Archibald MacLeish to write, to see the earth as it truly is, small and blue and beautiful, in that eternal silence where it floats, is to see ourselves as riders on the earth together, brothers in that bright loveliness in the eternal cold. Brothers who know now they are truly brothers. In that moment of surpassing technological triumph, men turned their thoughts toward home and humanity, seeing in that far perspective that man's destiny on earth is not divisible, telling us that however far we reach into the cosmos, our destiny lies not in the stars, but on earth itself, in our own hands, in our own hearts. We have endured a long night of the American spirit. But as our eyes catch the dimness of the first rays of dawn, let us not curse the remaining dark. Let us gather the light. Our destiny offers not the cup of despair, but the chalice of opportunity 
So let us seize it, not in fear, but in gladness. And riders on the earth together, let us go forward, firm in our faith, steadfast in our purpose, cautious of the dangers, but sustained by our confidence in the will of God and the promise of man. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Check out evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.